But we are glad that you're here, and I'm glad to continue this series that I have with you and uh, just the time that we've got together. I just want to encourage you that if you miss a week over these next few weeks, go but to our website and do not miss the sermon. Because we are going to be building each week on the direction of where God is leading us as a church. And this direction is not something that we have determined as a group of leaders at Journey and that we just want you to get on board with. Instead, we're doing something different, something we've never done before, and that is that we want very real feedback from you about what God is telling you about our community. And as God shares those with you, we want you to share that with us, and we're going to give you some ways to do that in the coming weeks. But while that I'm, all that I'm talking about is meant to move us in the direction of seeking God's next for us as individuals, as husbands, as wives, as friends, but also as a community and as a church. And what we began with last week, which was our first week, is understanding that no matter where you are and no matter where you've been, God loves you too much to leave you there. But instead, he is beckoning you, calling you, encouraging you to pursue your next. And that next is not something that you or I are going to define. We're not going to just decide this is what we want our next to be. It's something God's already at work with. And he is calling us and urging us and encouraging us to follow in that. And I, I want to share some of that with you today. I want to continue that. And especially, I want you to walk away today understanding that if you are going to pursue the next that God has for you, it will take effort on your part. There is nothing in our lives in which we can do nothing and reach a favorable next. There is really nothing that we can do. Everything of, of worth and value takes effort in our lives, and this is one that is going to do that as well. I want to start with a story, and some of you, our history buffs are in the room. You may have uh, you may be familiar with this story. It's about Operation Halyard. It happened in the last few months of World War II. And it was a group of pilots of the Allied forces that were continually bombing all of Hitler's forces that they could get to. If you've watched any movies, if you've been in the theater of war yourself, you know that there are always casualties when you try to undertake something of value to protect someone or to keep someone from oppressing others. There's always going to be a cost in place. But this particular operation was like no other operation in World War II. A group of pilots from all different nations, but primarily from the U.S., would fly bomber runs over Hitler's territory over and over again. And what would happen as they would enter into these enemy territories is they would meet incredible fire from the ground, and many, over 400 of these pilots, were downed. Now, what they would do when they would get hit is they would attempt to drift their way into Yugoslavia, because in Yugoslavia, there were a group of, of indigenous people, of Serbian peasants, that were there attempting to help all of those people that were jumping out of planes and drifting into their area. Now, the reason I want to tell you this story is because something very significant is going to happen here. They are, many of these pilots are going to be found by these friendly forces, but they're going to find themselves in a place of chaos, not sure how to get to their next place in their life. 
They're going to find themselves in a place that they don't want to be, on the ground, in territory that could easily be overrun, putting their lives in the hands of somebody else that they don't know, that doesn't speak their language, and they don't even know how to fulfill the plan for any kind of rescue in the future. And yet they know that in order for us to have a next, we are going to have to trust them. And in this time, as they began to look and scan the skies throughout the day and throughout the night, and they would look for these pilots that would slowly come floating in, they would rush out to meet them before any of the German forces could find them. And if they had found them, they would have either interrogated or killed those pilots. And they would rush out and find them and bring them back into their homes, bring them back into their places of safety. They would feed them and take care of them. There was no way for them to communicate. They just did not speak each other's language And eventually a plan was hatched to get all of these pilots out that had at this point numbered over 400. But what they had to do, each one of these pilots, is they had to live with one of these peasants. And whenever they said it was time to go, they would have to go and follow them. And what would follow would be weeks of time jumping from combat to combat because many of these same people that were rescuing them were also fighting the Germans in their own areas. And in each of these battles, these pilots would just have to tag along out of the comfort of the thing that they had been trained in, the ability for them to inflict harm on the enemy. They just had to be at the mercy of those freedom fighters, which for me would make me wonder, how well trained are you? How safe am I with you? If if I go with you, are you going to guarantee I'm going to get there or should we just kind of stay here and play it safe? Should I just kind of hang out here at the house and hope nobody comes by? And the risk for both were incredible because if they were found, they would all be killed. But if they did not take a step, these pilots would never get home to their friends and to their families. They would never be able to jump back into the fight. They would never be able again to contribute to what was going on in a worldwide war. So eventually a landing strip was determined and it was communicated to all of these freedom fighters, but not to the pilots. It had to be top secret because if in, in any way it got out, then German forces could just wait it out and in the evacuation could take them all out at one time. And so they only let the freedom fighters know. And for those few weeks, as these pilots traveled with them, lived with them, ate whatever was given to them, fought beside them, And then just went whenever they told them to go. In their minds, they had to trust them implicitly that if I'm going to take my next, I have to follow them. At the end of this operation in 1944, over 400 pilots were airlifted out from this secret landing strip. It's the largest rescue operation of airmen in the history that that we have of flying in a war. It's one of the largest rescues, period. And what they learned, and what we see, and the reason I'm telling you this story, is because for each one of these pilots, unless they were willing to take an uncomfortable and unknown step in a direction following the leadership of someone they didn't know, then they would never have made it home. For us, we're not asking you to put your trust in us as leaders in the way that they put their trust in these peasants We are asking you to put your trust in God that is not always clear in the direction that he's sending you, that if you are going to experience your next, it is going to be uncomfortable and you're going to have to walk and you're going to have to make an effort. You will not get there 
by simply staying where you are, going through your life's routines, and not being intentional about following the voice of God. Because God will meet you where you are, but He loves you too much to leave you there. I want to tell you another story in Scripture that I think is, is crucial to understanding what it looks like to follow and how do we as Christians today continue to follow this example, even of these guys from 2,000 years ago? And as we look at the rescue and the story out of Yugoslavia, yours and my rescue is so much more significant than theirs. Because not only were they saved for this life, but we are saved for the next If you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, that's where we're going to hang out. That's where we're going to be this morning. God meets you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. There we go. Acts chapter 9 is the conversion of Saul. And I want you to put yourselves in the place of Saul. Maybe not exactly uh, in, in the circumstances that he's at, but I want you to understand the experience and the conviction and then the change that God brings within his life. Acts chapter 9 verse 1, but Saul still breathing threats. And murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I'm sure if you've heard the story of Saul at all, you know that this is not King Saul in the Old Testament. This is Saul, who would later be renamed as Paul, who was responsible for giving us the majority of the New Testament. Outside of the Gospels, we have the most content of what it looked like to be in the early church from Paul than anybody else. But before he was Paul, he was Saul. And before he was a follower of Jesus, he was a follower of the tradition. He was a follower of Judaism. He was a follower of all the rules and all of the things that you were supposed to do to be a good Jew. And he was someone who was rising in the ranks within the level of responsibility within the church at the time. And he would go out and find these followers of Jesus. And he would do everything that he could to stop them. We know that he held the coats. Of those who stoned the apostles, we know that he constantly was looking and searching for those that would call Jesus their Lord. And we know that within his own heart, he was absolutely content in the life that he was living. Because at this point, he had come to the church and he had said, I need your permission to go out and work even harder and find every single person or follower of the way. Which, remember, the way was what the way they described the followers of Jesus in the New Testament. They didn't call them Christians. They called them followers of the way because Jesus said, I am a way, a truth, a life, right? That's not what he said. He said, I am the way. There is one way. And followers of Jesus have come to the conviction and to the belief of saying, there are many ways in which to live our lives. And each one of you and I, we have each chosen a way to live our lives. But Jesus says, no, there is one way. And that is through me. And so as we look at Paul's story, he was living a way, a way that was working out very well for him in what was still a very strict culture 
within Jerusalem that was very much against what Jesus taught, even though Christianity was spreading like wildfire. And in this moment, as he's going to get these letters to say, I want absolute permission and authority to track down anybody and take whatever steps it means to squash this movement of heretics. I I need to end it now, and I need your permission to do it. And while that's hard for us to understand exactly what's going on at this time, because we have, in many levels, separation of church and state, there was no separation of church and state. The church was the state. And so if you had that paper, if he had those documents, then he could do whatever he wanted without fear of any kind of recourse. As we look at his life and we look at how passionate Paul was, At this time, we know that Paul was content with his life until one day, until one day he met Jesus. So you're going to come to a place in your life that if you see Jesus for who he is, you are not going to be content with your life no matter how good your life is. Now, many of us want to have good lives. In fact, I would probably dare say every one of us in the room wants to have a good life, right? We probably disagree on what that good life looks like. For some of you, that good life looks like a good heater and air conditioner in the house so you don't have to leave and you're Netflixing it all day long. For some of you, that doesn't sound like heaven. That sounds like hell. But you outside, I want to be outside. I want to be in the trees. I want to be around the water. I want to be around animals. I want to smell the smells. I don't want to be inside. I don't care how cold it is. We each have chosen a way in which to live our lives, but every one of us, when we experience Christ, we come to a place where we say, my way is not enough anymore. I can't be content in this way. And it is that discontentment that will push you to believe and to pursue and to seek out that which God is calling you to, that thing that we are calling your next as Christians, I, I tried to communicate as well as I could last week. God is not so much expecting us to reach a plane of maturity in which we can just hang out and we can live life and we can say, I am here. Now let's go get filled up at church and I'll be sure to put something on the back of my car to let people know that I'm a Christian and maybe they won't hold it against me if I'm speeding or cutting them off or doing something like that. When I was a kid, we loved to have these t-shirts, and I loved to be in the gym. I still do, and I had these shirts I would cut the sleeves out of because I thought I was a stud, but it wasn't Gold's Gym. It was the Lord's Gym. Amen. Well, thank you. This feels wonderful. You want to come up and give me a little, you know, shoulder rub? I don't want you to fall. Okay, I will fall. I have done it before. Thank you. Thank you. I keep having to bend over, too. But the truth is... In those times, it's easy to wear those shirts and put those things on the back of your, your cars. And it's easy to say, I'm a Christian and show up church from every now and again. But, but when you do that and you are not constantly pursuing and seeking God, you are never going to end up in the place where God is drawing you because God never called us to a destination. He called us to a way and to a journey, to a different way of living life, a different way of breathing air, a different way of pursuing our heart's goals and, and dreams because our heart's goals and dreams change. Paul was absolutely content. He was well-liked among his peers. He had all that he needed to do his job. 
He was protecting what he knew and what he believed was safe and real and true, even though it was already passed and Jesus had come. He had people that were patting him on the back saying, you've got the best life ever. I sometimes have people come up to me and I, they see the things that I do within my life and they, I get a pat on the back every now and again. You're doing things well and I want to go, yes, I am. And I spend time with Jesus and he shows me just a glimpse of the next and I realize I'm not even close. We like to be comfortable in our own lives. We like to be in control of our own destinies. We like to believe that the future is ours to go after and take. And while each of us are going to have to take a step towards our next, if we're doing it in whatever way we've chosen to live life and not the way that God is pulling us towards, then it will inevitably leave you empty. And for Paul... His response is he first saw Jesus and realized he is real. This is not just some story. This is not just some undercurrent of people dissatisfied with the status quo, but yet Jesus was real. Jesus' question to him was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? In that moment, he had a realization that there's something more that he didn't realize. He didn't understand. He was experiencing something he didn't think possible which is the way God works in the lives of those who seek him. He didn't believe it was possible, but in the moment it was. And Jesus said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Which, by the way, even though this was after Jesus had died and resurrected and then went to heaven, this is why Paul says, I am an apostle, this experience right now, because this wasn't an angel. This was Jesus that appeared to him after his ascension into heaven. And later he'll have to defend that, but he... This is why we call him the Apostle Paul, even though he didn't walk with Jesus until this this point. Paul was content with his life until he met Jesus. And I'm just going to tell you right now, if you know Jesus and you are content with your life, you need to seek him more. Because it's in the moments that I am absolutely content that I can tell you I am doing the least and fostering a deeper relationship with him. The more I seek God, the less content I become. And I am not some kind of poster child for the, the perfect, mature Christian. Everyone I know that is seeking Christ feels the exact same way. Contentment, you see, is, is a wonderful thing to seek after because it makes us feel like we have no wants. We have no needs. Everything's okay. This is what it's supposed to be. I could just sit and rest because I dare say there's probably not a person in here thinking, gosh, you know what I need in my life? I need something else to do. There's probably not a one of you in here that that, that equates to. But whenever you know Christ, he is always beckoning you for more, taking you places that you haven't been before. For Paul, this was not only a significant experience because he believed he was pleasing God before. I see over and over again people looking to please God, and they, they look to please God, and they've, they've got their list of the things that please God. And if I, just, if I do my list, I'm pleasing God. And if I'm pleasing God, then he's going to bless me. And if he blesses me, then I'm going to be content, and life's going to be good, and I'm just going to be able to rest and relax. And that's not the way he works. That's just not the way he works. If you have come to experience Christ, you cannot be content with a life without Christ once you truly know him. There is something that draws you, it pulls you, it makes you say there is more. And even if you can't define it, 
you begin to see that there is more. Augustine, perhaps the most influential theologian in our history outside of the apostles, and Jesus himself said this, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement. Would you say that about your relationship with Christ? Can I tell you there are some days I absolutely would say this, and I feel it and I live it and I believe it, I breathe it, I eat it. And there are some days that I don't. There are some days that I like to be content. There are some days I like to rest. There are some days I just don't want anyone asking anything else of me. But too many days like that, and I begin to feel that life is becoming empty again. It's becoming meaningless. I'm going through the motions, but I'm not experiencing what I'm used to experiencing with Christ. And it's again that urging to say, come, be with me, follow me. This is how the conversation continued after Paul experienced this, or saw at this time. His name would later be changed to Paul. But after this experience, the next thing that Jesus said was in verse 6, Rise and enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Now, they were on a mission with Saul, but this was not the mission. This was not where they were headed. And so they're watching all this and thinking, what in the world is going on? Except it gets even more bizarre. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. You know, we look at this story and we think, gosh, this is such a unique story. If I had had this experience, you better believe I'd be on fire for Jesus. (laughs) I mean, if I saw him and he appeared to me in a light and then all of a sudden I was blind, I would absolutely be like, this is absolutely real. I'll give everything to experience this and everything in my life. But we also see an uncomfortable truth in Saul's life here that it's, uncomfortable for each one of us if we're used to charting our own course finding our own way doing our own thing being masters of our own ship all followers of jesus must be led and there is nothing comfortable about being led unless you're afraid to walk alone and what scripture tells us is Each of us, ultimately within our hearts, wants to lead the way. I want to be the master of my ship. I I, I want to be the Lord of my house. I want to be the one who determines what happens. I want other people to look at me and think of, of good things about me and look up to me. I want to be in control of my destiny and of my future. If I receive some kind of success, I'm the one who got that success. And that is our sin nature, to believe that we are our own gods. We all have it. We all want it. We may be fractured in different ways and express it in different ways, but we all have it. But what Paul had to experience at this very beginning of his relationship with Christ was you are not going to be able to determine your own direction. You are going to have to be led. Some of us within the church are very wary of people who want to lead us, aren't we? We've been there. We've been led poorly. We've been led in ways that are said that these are true and what God wants, and yet it seems like the only people that benefit are those who are leading. Some of us have been hurt. We've given up on following. We 
kind of guard our hearts and pull away and we just try to just protect ourselves instead of letting God move us and lead us somewhere else. But for him, he had to be led. It was uncomfortable. There was chaos. If you think that this is something you could manage, just try to leave today, keep your eyes closed, and see how well you do throughout the day. Probably won't work well. All followers of Jesus must be led. Each one of us finds ourselves in this moment of experiencing Jesus that the footing that we have trusted just begins to fall out from under us. And now we have to trust something that we don't fully understand, that we can't fully see or hear every moment of the day. It's not like Jesus is just waking up next to us and giving us our itinerary for the day. Instead, he just says, seek me, follow me, pursue me, and I will show you the way to go. It's like Abraham when he walked up one day, a wealthy, wealthy man and God said, if you will just leave everything and follow me, I will make you a great nation. And he said, where am I going? And he said, you just need to get up and follow me. And see, that is uncomfortable for me. See, I have GPS on my phone. Tell me where I'm going, I'll get there. I know how to get somewhere. We talk about goals for our church. Okay, these are the three things that need to happen. Now, we just need to make these three things happen. But that's not the way it works. Instead, it's a consistent following. A consistent being led, a consistent moving, a consistent recognizing that I have to be comfortable in the chaos of not being in control. But at the same time, my eyes must be fixed on the one who was drawing me to somewhere significant. If we don't believe God wants to draw us somewhere significant, then I encourage you to spend some time in prayer and meditation because God always wants to draw you somewhere significant. There are no insignificant believers in the kingdom. We are all his children. We all have a part to play. And whenever we do say, well, some person's more significant to God than I am, that is completely a human-based understanding of hierarchy. That is not the way God sees. We are all equals. We talked about last week, even within the church, while we put certain leaders at some kind of pedestal and say they're, they're more important or more invaluable in the church, Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says we're all parts of the body and every part needs each other. And if one part is not there or one part is not functioning, the whole body feels it. Many times I I talk to people and the reason that they're not plugged in, the reason that they're not giving of themselves of the things God is showing them and teaching them and has gifted them with in their lives is because they don't feel like they have something to offer. The only person who doesn't have something to offer is the person who doesn't know Christ. Because Christ makes up for everything else in our lives. I'm so encouraged on the days that I feel like I'm not doing things well that God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. I am so glad he did not say my power is made perfect in your strength because then I would really be in trouble and so would you. All followers of Christ must be led and it is not comfortable and it is not easy But it is a call that you begin to learn to love. You begin to see God intertwining your life with his action, and it is addictive. You begin to see God 
do things that you never saw before. You begin to hear him speak to you in ways that you never heard before. You begin to be a part of things you never thought you would be a part of before. And all of these things is because he is beckoning you to be an ever-growing part of the kingdom with a role to play. The next part of the story comes in verse 10. It says, there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. Now, I, I feel for Ananias. <laughs> the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise up and go to a street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. He kills people like me. That's not what he says, but that's what he's thinking. He's not a good guy, God. I think you need to look elsewhere. I I don't know if you're keeping score, but we are, and he's not on our team. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Oh, these kinds of verses mess you up. Why would Paul deserve suffering, but none of the rest of us? It's not so much about deserving it as much as it suffering teaches us. It shows us a way. It tells us that where we are now is not good to stay here. Suffering for us is the beckoning call of God to say, I want you to come with me, but you are too comfortable where you are. And then we have to choose if we are going to follow. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. We look at the story of Saul. It's easy to overlook Saul because we're so familiar with Paul. Paul being the one who spread the gospel in all the places that nobody else wanted to go. Paul being the one who gave us most of our New Testament and has taught us most of our systematic theology and understanding what it means to be the church and to follow Christ. Paul is the guy that we like. Saul is the guy that we don't like. And yet Saul is the one God chose. And so whenever you and I look at our lives in the mirror and say, I am not good enough, I do not do things well enough, a lot of people don't really like me and I don't speak very well or I don't feel like I have really anything to offer, I'm not really good at teaching anybody anything, I'm not really good at stuff, understand that God always has a significant next for you no matter who you are or where you've been. Always. He always has a significant next for you. There is no way for you to do anything that will remove you from God's desire and God's love to bring you to the place that he created you. Nothing you can do. Nowhere that you've been. God is always beckoning you for your next. 
And it is a significant next. And it doesn't matter where you've been. If you are a Saul or if you are a Paul, God calls the Sauls. Boy, that rhymes. That feels so good. I didn't even plan that. I'm going to make a, I'm going to put that on Instagram this week. We go to verse 19, and this is what happens. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. No doubt he's learning, being led. He's changing his whole way of thinking about the world himself, about God, and about serving him. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. See, there is a consistent call that you and I each have. There's, there's one that we don't have to debate and we don't have to wonder, is this your call or is this just my call? And that is that we are to proclaim Christ with our lives. We all have that call. We may all do that differently, but we all have that. Those were some of the last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. I want you to go out and I want you to share the gospel and baptize these new disciples into the kingdom. And I want you to teach them everything they need to know. That was not a call just for the apostles, but for everyone who would ever see Christ. And he hit the, hit the ground running. I want you, I want you to, to, to understand how important I, I think this pursuit of the next is. For you, for you in your life. I don't mean just the next thing in your life. We all have the next thing in our life. Next promotion, the next raise, the next house, the next city we might want to live in. You know, we all have a next. We're going to do better at parenting our kids. I want to be better at being a spouse. I want to be a better friend. You know, we all have different necks and things that we think about we want to work towards. If you have a hobby, you want to get better at your hobby. Uh, you know, we all have those. And there's nothing wrong with having goals within your life. But what I, the next that I'm talking about is the one that Jesus is constantly drawing you towards, that he has created you for, that he must show up in order for you to be able to fulfill it. And I do not believe that you can fully experience Jesus until you fully embrace the next he has for your life. Because as we read last week, he rewards those who seek him. Not sought him. Not at one time there were a seeker. But he's calling us to continually seek him. You cannot fully experience Jesus until you fully embrace the next he has for your life. Now, if you're here today and you're thinking, I know what my next is. I just I haven't seen God fulfill it yet. Then praise the Lord, you're on track. There are many times that God calls us to a next and we're not sure how we're going to fulfill it. But you're on track. See, if it's something you can do on your own, it's not God's next. But God is calling you and if God is calling you out of all of the contentness in which you have found within your life to pursue something that's better, something that's greater, but yet takes effort, may involve suffering and will surely involve sacrifice. 
then you begin to see the value of who Christ is in your everyday life and not just someone we sing about, not just someone we come to church for, but someone that we live our lives through and with every moment of every day. I, can't, I don't believe you can fully experience Jesus until you experience that calling, that pulling, that seeking him with everything. That is in the moments that we begin to experience him fully. Which is why that you can have moments within your life where you know absolutely you were, you were with Jesus. You were walking together. You were with each other. I mean, on, you were on fire, we sometimes say, for Christ. And why you can then drift out of that. It's because we've stopped seeking. Now, I've had times in my life where I have felt that God has brought me to such new heights. I never thought I would get there, and then I camp out. <laughs> okay, now I'm content, and God, you brought me here, so I'm content. But God has never said, okay, you, got, you made it. You made it. That's it. End of story. Some of the worst movies ever made are the ones that Leave, they leave the, the ending open-ended, isn't it? They never give you a conclusion. Well, how does this end? What's the end of the story? Well, you're supposed to figure it out yourself. That's not the way this is supposed to happen. <laughs> it's something uncomfortable about that, but yet that is the life God has called us to. I'm not going to ever give you the total end game. The end game we can find very much in Revelation, but we have no idea when that will be, and you and I may or may not be here for that moment. But until that moment, this is what he is asking us to follow me. Follow me. One of the things I've seen over and over within the church. is I don't think that we miss God's best because we are intentionally running from God. We miss God's best because we settle for everything else in our life. We don't miss God's best because we say, God, I don't want what you, you want from me. We don't often do that. Instead, we just say, God, that's okay. I'm okay with what I got. I'm okay here. Still good. I'm just going to sit here and do this. So every time I, I see somebody post something about how fast life goes and how they can't remember a good part of their life. They've just been on the rat race for a number of years. I just think, gosh, that is, that is a nightmare for me. To live life just going to the next thing until one day I just don't have the energy to do it anymore or I'm too old to hold a job or my body fails me. And as I look back, I look at the journey of my life and I think, gosh, I just fulfilled a schedule. It was, I was content in my schedule, but gosh, it doesn't feel very fulfilling. If you look at your lives and you think, where has the time gone? I'm going to encourage you to seek God in this moment right now. Because when I'm seeking God, I rarely ask the question, where has the time gone? I know where it's gone. I feel it. I've been a part of it. It's been an exciting time to be alive, and I still have a schedule. Praise the Lord, we had school out some this week. Amen? And none of the parents said amen, I don't think. 
<laughs> you know? I enjoy those times of rest. I enjoy those times of rejuvenation. I enjoy those times with our kids. But I don't want to live a life where I just go from one thing to the next. I got to get up, make sure the kids get to school. Then I got to hit the gym. Then I got to do work. Then I got to get home. Then I got to get the kids to where they got to go. And then all of a sudden, I wake up and realize they're all gone. You know, that is the empty nest syndrome. The empty nest syndrome that you hear about of parents of recently graduated kids uh, who are moving out and are gone are people that have not invested their life in anything other than the schedule with their kids. And if that's all you do is make sure your kids are taken care of and you don't invest in people and you don't invest in God's work within your life, if you're not involved in a community that goes on even after they move out, then you're going to feel very much alone Do you know the reason that so many couples divorce when the kids move out of the house is because they put so much of their lives, their self, and their energy into getting these kids raised and not into their relationship with each other that when the kids aren't there anymore, the glue that held them together is now gone. That is totally the way we live our lives because we want to get in a rhythm and stay there. Saul was in a rhythm, but Jesus loved him too much to leave him there. You may be in a rhythm, but God loves you too much to leave you there. And that ongoing call is, come and follow me. We don't miss God's best because we're intentionally running from God. We miss God's best because we settle for everything else. As I look over our church, I know that much of what I'm saying may lead you to all kinds of different necks within your life. God may lead you into different ways of service. He may lead you into different ways of ministry. He may lead you into different cities and different towns. And we don't ever like to see somebody move away, but that may be where God's next is for you. He may lead you to invest your life in others for the rest of your life and Pursue ministry in some way. Ministry is not simply being a pastor or being a missionary. There are so many other ways to minister into a hurting and broken world. God may be beckoning beckoning you towards that. Some of the things that I'm praying for in these next few weeks, and I just desperately, desperately have been asking God to break into the monotony of our lives One of the things I'm praying for you for this time is that you will let Jesus break through this monotony. Some of you may be in transitional moments within your lives and nothing feels monotonous, but it will very quickly because that's our default where we tend to move to. I'm praying that you'll find meaning in your service to others and not simply sacrifice in your service to others. Do you see this is one of the things that keep people from experiencing Christ even though they are doing good things because they see their service as a sacrifice, but they don't see the meaning and the value in how they're serving. That's why on, you know, sometimes if you're in with the little ones who, you know, don't just sit and listen and go, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. They don't do that in the little classes, right? And you wake up and you've had a long week and you're like, oh gosh, I got these kids. (laughs) 
I think I'm sick. You know, I can't make it today. See, my hope is that for our kids workers in our in our church, that you don't just simply come and make sure we have people taking care of kids, that nobody gets hurt and they somewhat have a good time, so they'll come back. My hope is that you build relationships with these kids, that you are gonna, you're going to see them as they grow. You're going to invest in them, and you're going to be that person that they're going to say, you know what, when life didn't make sense, I remember that person who constantly gave into my life. I'm not a big golfer. The reason I'm not a big golfer, I actually have a brand new set of golf clubs in my garage. I've had them there for five years. I've played on them one time. They look as brand new as they were in the box. The reason I don't go play golf is because I'm terrible at golf. I'm terrible. I mean, I'm the guy who's out there wanting to take his club and wrap it around the tree. That's me. I wish I wasn't that way. I pray God to remove that thorn in my flesh. But whenever I get that golf club, I want to wrap it around a tree. Few years ago, I thought, you know what? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna I'm gonna start golfing again. It's gonna be fun. I just need something to go blow off some steam. I love being outside, anyways. I can just go and golf. And I got my brand new set of golf clubs, and because you know the old set was a problem. It wasn't me. It was the old set of clubs. So I bought the new set of clubs that was gonna solve all my problems. I went to the driving range one time, and I've not touched them since. New clubs didn't fix a thing. I guess I bought the wrong clubs. I don't know. But the thing about playing golf, and some of you who are golfers can attest to this, is that I can go and if I do actually go play golf, I may have 17 holes where I shank every single drive. But if I get one good drive, you better believe I'll be back, especially if it's on the back nine. If it's on the front nine, I'll probably forget about it. But if it's on the back nine and I get one good hit, I will probably be back. I found in service there is much in sacrifice and giving of yourselves. Times that you got to get up and you got to show up in the moments that you just want to sit and rest and have others show up for you. But every now and again, there is that conversation. There is that person that you have invested in and you see it and you see all that you've hoped for them and prayed for them and invested in them and they get it. And maybe it's just that one kid. Maybe it's just that one youth. Maybe it's just that one adult. And 10 others, you see nothing, no benefit whatsoever of the sacrifice and service in which you've given. But yet when you see that someone's life was changed because of your willingness to serve, it's like that one good drive on the course, it will get me coming back, which is not really a great illustration since I said I haven't played in five years. However, the point is still (laughs) solid. (laughs) Right? All illustrations break down somewhere. Now, prayer for you that you'll find meaning in your service to each other. That it won't just be that something got done, a job got filled, something happened in your relationship with God because of it. Something happened in our community because of it. And if your service is only within our community, you'll misunderstand what God wants to do through the gifts he's given you because our service goes outside of this community as well. You know, many of you serve in great ways outside of our church. I'm also praying that you'll pursue God's next for you, not just here, but at home. God's next at work. God's next with your friends and God's next with your family because, see, God has a next for every part of your life. Perhaps your next at work is not the next promotion or the next raise. Perhaps it's the 
repaired relationship, the positive influence, the I'm going to at least be the one who cares for others in this place. And the thing is, when you begin to find meaning in your service to others through Christ, if you do that and no one notices, you still win. See, it's a, it's a fable that we have to get a pat on the back for service to feel good. Jesus said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. Not only are we mimicking Jesus, we are making Jesus proud because we are following his example. I am praying that, God will, that we will together pursue God's next as a church. We're entering into another 10 years of our church. I'm excited about what God has done and how he has brought us here together. But I, I believe God has so much more for us. And that means you've got to be plugged in and involved for that to happen. I'm praying that we will reach people that don't know Christ or those who are disfranchised or those who don't fit in. I'm praying that we will help people become disciples who know what it looks like to know Christ and not just do the church stuff because that's where things get empty. I'm just doing church stuff. Church stuff, it's, it's not real fun, to be quite honest. I, I make a living off of church stuff, well, partially. <laughs> church stuff is not all that fun. There are a lot of more fun ways to spend our lives, except Jesus isn't in all those other ways. He has said, I'm going to work within you, my children, my people. You are going to come together, and you are going to be a body together, and you are going to change the world together. I'm going to give each one of you something you're good at, and if you will just do the thing in which I have called you to, then you are not going to know what everyone else may be doing, but you're all going to fit together, and it's going to be spectacular. Those relationships that you build and we spend time together are so valuable and rich. I'm going to read this and I'm going to close. This is Philippians 3. This is Paul reflecting on the time that we just read about. This is what Paul says about his time before knowing Christ and then what his life is like now because he does know Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. I'm just going to read through these next few verses. It says, For we are the circumcision who worshiped by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I had it going on. I had a good life. I was happy with my life. People knew that I was on top of my game. Verse 7 says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, uns- uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, which is what Jesus told Ananias he was going to experience, by the way. 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by no means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I have found something better. We're going to come back to these verses another week. But he goes on in verse 12 to say, not that I have already obtained this. I mean, if we look at all the things that Paul's done, he's got it going on. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus is always working on a new you because he loves you. He's always working on a new you. It's because of his great love for you. No matter where you are, where you've been, life feels chaotic without Christ. It just does. Even when things are going well, life just is chaotic. But it is out of the chaos of life that Jesus is calling you to a better and more meaningful future than where anywhere you are right now or anywhere you've been in the past. He is calling you to something more. But just like those PLWs, There are times that we just have to be willing to take a step. And if we're not willing to take a step and we're not willing to pursue that next, we will miss it. No matter where you have been, no matter where you are, God is offering you a next. But you have to walk towards it. What I'm thankful about being a part of a faith community is that we get to walk towards it together. We don't have to do this alone. That has never been the intention of God. And so I, I pray and hope that you are seeking the next in your own life with me. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that your love is so complete that you are not expecting us to be lovely or worthy You are not asking us to be perfect. You're not even asking us to be good. You're just asking us to seek and to follow you. I pray for those in this room right now. God, I pray that you would give them such a sense of your calling for something new in their life. A place to go, something to experience. And a way to have a future that involves relying on you. God, it is with fear that we think about a next that we're not in control of. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't know what the consequences or the sacrifice will be to get there. So I pray that you would increase our faith and that we can trust you, that you are in control, that we can trust where you lead, and that your next for us is good. For those who are in a moment of suffering and a moment of struggle this morning, I pray you will help them to see their suffering as a moment of you interacting and interceding into their world to pull them to their next with you.
We are never more resistant to you than when things are going well. So I pray that those that are suffering right now will be drawn to you in a way that will change their lives and the lives around them forever. Thank you for your love and your time together with us today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.